You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy Well Muslim Podcast. This is Osma Jaffrey, and this is Zeba Hassan. And it's been it's been quite a week. I think we had like a blood moon lunar eclipse last night, Osma. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how your week has been going? And I can tell you my crazy week. My week was uh, very, it reminded me so much of you and what you have prepared me for, like as the teenage years are coming, those uh, windshield conversations, (laughs) because you said that you can't look directly at the teenager, right? Because it's kind of like Medusa. Yes. You can't look at the teenager, but the teenager can be to the side and you can have conversations. And so we've had conversations like that where he's either beside me or behind me. And I don't even look in the rear view mirror. And we are talking like some serious things like, you know, career plans and expectations and sex and teen pregnancy and abstinence and getting married, like tough, tough things. And it didn't feel that tough. Good. Because I didn't have to look at it, yes. you know, like I just had to have the conversation. I could hear, I think him feeling awkward, but like registering like, oh, yeah, maybe I won't be ready to get married by the time I'm 18. But, you know, I would really <laughs> just like to get it over with, you know, yeah. like <laughs> be band-aid. done on Let's that part of my obligation. And I'm like, yeah, no, you know, it's not something that you just have to do, you know? And he's like, yeah, and I just have to have kids like when I'm young so that I can just do it. I'm like, yeah, but that's when you're like wanting to grow your career. Is that really a good time for you to have kids, you know, right. because you won't be able to spend time with them? And so these are just seeds that I'm planting and I'm not telling him what to do or what not to do, except lock it up and don't be stupid during yes. your career because it will end your career if you get into girls. Like, don't do it. Yes. Um, so I'm planting the seeds right now. And it just thank you so much for preparing me because otherwise, uh, my plan was to schedule a bunch of sit downs at the no, kitchen table and have never. hot chocolate and have these conversations. Yeah, no. it's not going to happen like that, guys. It shouldn't. No, it just shouldn't happen. It shouldn't. It's going to be awkward if you do it that way. No. And, and, and by the way, these are going to be series of conversations you're going to have all throughout and you're just setting the tone, setting the tone, setting the tone. And hopefully you're letting him guide the conversation versus you guiding the conversation because that's when you know that they'll come to you. And you know, you, you know, it's been tough with us. Um, we've had some challenges yeah. and because we started off with these Um, we call them parallel conversations where we're sitting side by side. We've been able to navigate these. We're still having the challenges, obviously, but we've been able to navigate um, navigate the tough times because we're creating foundations, right? That's what you're doing. You're literally creating the foundations for future. Inshallah, nobody has to go through these tough, tough times, but you're creating the foundation for future, for future conversations. So inshallah, um, that continues. And I hope he's not going to get married at 18 because tell him he is not (laughs) done baking at 18. And he is <laughs> not going to be good for any woman at 18 and he needs to continue yeah. cooking. So just tell him that. Mm-hmm. That's from Auntie Zeba. Like, yeah. you need to finish cooking. Honey. From Auntie You're Zeba. Not done I'll cooking. let him know. And you know, he listens to the stage. podcast, so he will hear that. Yeah, he will hear that. Say, <laughs> so you are not done cooking. You need to go, go a little bit further after that. So, speaking of difficult conversations and times, it is a difficult time for you right now. Mm-hmm. I know you're very conflicted. 
like many, many moms across the country and the world. Yes. Um, so tell us about that. Well, you know, my son is about to graduate from high school and it's a, it's a bittersweet moment. You kind of see glimpses of the baby. Cause for me, they're always the baby, right? Like you, you see the smile, you, you catch, you catch some of the, those moments, but you, you're excited for them as well. But I literally in the middle of a day will just remember something and start crying or like this, this, this particular, my, my number three was at a baseball game and my oldest came to support him, which was just an amazing thing. And he was sitting with a couple of his friends and there were two little toddlers behind him. And I happened to look over and I remembered my younger two at one of his games. And it was just like this full circle moment. And it really was like in a blink of an eye and part of your, your yeah. growth as a parent, you're thinking like, wow, that in a blink of an eye, that was me. Um, and now he's mm-hmm. going to be gone. And, you know, he's literally at an internship right now. Like the, the last two weeks of school, they don't have finals. Cause so he was like dressed up. He had a tie on he's, he's interning for some real estate mm-hmm. development firm in DC this week. And, and he was like, mom, but of course he still had to say, can you iron my pants this morning? So I had to get up and iron his pants. So like, <laughs> what'd still, you make for breakfast? <laughs> yeah. Then he's like, can you make me coffee? So like, I'm still doing those things, but I recognize that I'm, I'm a background player. I'm, you know, a background player in his life and that's how it's supposed to be. And if you've done your job well, that's all you have left, right? You're, you're like that little anecdote at the end. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough, I think it's a little bit tougher for a mom to have because you go from knowing every scratch on their body to like being a visiting member in, in their place. So it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, but to me, you know, I love that he's going on this journey and I just pray that, you know, we've done what we can, you know, to give him, give him the guidance that he needs and knows that he's going to make mistakes and we'll be there to help guide him. But I'm trying not to cry today. So I'm going to let this go. And we're going to, you know, we're going to switch directions so that I don't cry. And we're going to continue our May series on like sex, drugs, and porn. Um, and we're, we're, we've been talking a lot about that and other addictions. And let me tell you, we have been causing quite the stir on social media with DMs coming in the left and right. And who would have thought that that would have been the case? And that just tells me that one, you guys are listening, which we really appreciate. You guys are willing to learn something about this. And most importantly, a lot of you are looking for help. So this is definitely touching touching something within our community. And, you know, we're, we're not about pretending like things don't exist. We've been honest about that from the beginning. We don't want to pretend like that within our, like these things happen even within our community and we want to face them head on. Um, And, you know, we've always talked about it to name it, to tame it. We've got to, we've got to figure it out. And our families are dealing with addictions and we're trying to build within our community. We have 
to build an end within it. And we're trying to bring you a special episode today because this is a very timely episode. And as you know, there's been a very tiny number of male voices on this podcast. So if we're bringing one on here, you know, this is special. Um, So this is an amazingly important topic. We didn't want to withhold the mic from him um, on an important parenting partner. It's all about hands-on decks for addiction. So let's tune in and know that mental health and substance use will be discussed and you can adjust your listening as you see fit for your family. So we just wanted to warn you accordingly, but we promise you the subject is fit for every single family. We have Salah Abumuna. He is a researcher um, and founder of The Better Conduct, a fiscally sponsored, socially impacted project of the American Muslim Community Foundation. He is joining us today. Better Conduct offers substance abuse recovery services from an Islamically informed lens. It facilitates group workshops for masjids, provides community education for Muslims. Not only in his life's work, he is the father of three beautiful Muslims. And despite being a dad and husband, he chose to go back to grad school to pursue his Master of Sciences degree in addiction studies. How could we not have him on? We are so thrilled that he was able to join us today. Welcome, Salah. Thank you so much for being one of the ma- one of the few male voices we've had here on Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you so much for the invitation and this opportunity. I'm really excited to be here. And hopefully, inshallah, we'll be able to share some great information for your listeners and definitely interested in hearing your experiences and perspectives as well. Thank you so much, Salah, for your flexibility mm-hmm. and coming on on such short notice. But as soon as we found out about your study, we absolutely had to have you on. Um, we like to kick off the podcast by asking you to share whatever you're comfortable sharing about your family um, and then your parenting philosophy. I'll start with the rougher news, my, my parenting philosophy. Started off absolutely wrong. I come from a Christian, <laughs> African-American, loving household. Um, two very proud African-American parents, one from Alabama, one from Arkansas. They made the Great Migration up north, met in Buffalo, New York, where I was born and raised. Um, Dad definitely um, was an authoritarian when he was there. Um, Mom took the reins when he was not. Mom was did everything she possibly could to ensure that her sons, I'm the youngest of four boys, um, were successful in this world and did not get into a lot of trouble. She was pretty successful with me um, as the baby. And she made sure that I spent summers in the library. She made sure that I did not go anywhere and supervised. She made sure I had absolutely no free time. She's pretty upset that I was not Obama, um, <laughs> but not, probably not as upset as my father would have been had I ever had the courage to tell him that I become a Muslim. Mm. Um, my father told me two things. He said, if you become gay or Muslim, I will shoot you. Oh, no. um, so I did become Muslim. I, he died very young, which will kind of inform my work. He died at the age of 53. Most men on my paternal side died very young. They all died from complications due to alcoholism and different, just not taking care of themselves, but loved him, loved him, loved him. And he was great. As I said, when he was present, um, I get lost when I tell these stories. It's already um, becoming emotional. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, my mom is, is a serial kind of scholar. She has like five master's degrees. 
Um, I think she got her last one at age 70. It was a Masters of Divinity. She marries and buries, even though she's retired. Um, <laughs> she still travels everywhere. And um, later in the story, you'll, you'll find out about a moment in my life where she became really um, familiar with the Islamic community. So um, when I when I had children, I, I'm a girl maker. I only have daughters. And I thought to raise them the way that, you know, I was raised, and that was authoritarian, and that made them fear me, and that backfired when they became teenagers. So it worked. We, when they were young, they, they were in madrasa, um, would have talim at the house. My daughters were doing everything to please daddy, to show that they were engaged in Islam and studying, and it was great, it was great. And then middle school came, and it became a little bit more tough, and high school came, and it became very tough. My eldest is the only one that we put through Islamic high school, she kind of still resents it to this day, but I feel like she's, she, it's getting better. It's getting better. It's getting better. She attended a very nice high school here, which I love, which is an awesome Islamic school here in the Bay Area. I mean, we took the child to Turkey, to Istanbul, to Spain, to Andalusia. She saw so many things that I never saw when I was in high school. And um, again, she feels like she wish she would have had a regular experience. The baby refused. Our 18-year-old is graduating from high school this year. She absolutely refused to go to Islamic high school, and she's been defiant since she came out of the room. She's the only one, I mean, at age five, she could, like, confound me and tell me why we should do something different than how I suggested, and we would just be like, how is this child right? But she was right, and so I learned the hard way that you don't want to make your daughters, at least your children, fear you you want to make them fear disappointing you in the sense that, you know, I want them to always want to share with me, um, not be afraid to share with me. And I, the only thing I want them to fear is sharing with me. Well, I don't want them to fear anything, but I, I hope I'm making the point that we want them to strive to do good and never to fear that our response is going to be anything but loving and appropriate. And therefore, the only thing they would be concerned about is sharing something that they know would truly, honestly disappoint us. I want to make sure we don't miss out on uh, what you touched on earlier was your um, personal experience with substance abuse and how that has touched your current study and the work that you do. Absolutely. Um, I, I like to say what I experienced was a full-blown adult temper tantrum sort of midlife crisis. So I had a pretty successful business here in San Francisco from 2008 to 2015 when the whole gentrification crisis was really, really hitting and folks were losing their businesses. I was like, oh, that's a shame. That's awful. And then all of a sudden I got that notice that they were going to increase my rent to some exorbitant amount, fought it as well as I could legally for a while and then had to let it go. Um, I was really bitter about that. Um, and I decided I was just going to do something that I'd never done before. And I talked to some guys at the masjid, and they were, you know, um, they were, a lot of them were driving Uber. And I talked to a guy that said he wanted to open up an LLC renting vehicles. I said, okay, that's something I'll do. Eventually, became just the one guy with the Uber black SUV limo driving through the streets of San Francisco at night. Um, still bitter, still upset, and had not been out in the streets at night as an adult in years. I'm wearing a suit. I'm driving this fancy car. I'm going to all of these clubs, picking up people. Eventually, I'm getting better tips to pick up certain types of people. I'm knowing this. I'm doing this. I'm not engaging mm -hmm. until one day that changes. Start engaging in the recreational use with some of these folks. Again, it's, 
it's it's couched in this higher echelon of club life. I'm I know all the bar owners. I'm picking them up. They're special clients. People are, you know, doing business in the backseat of the SUV. I'm driving here. I'm driving there. Um, I look really cool in the street. All of these younger folks are looking up to me. I'm I'm in this whole new world I never knew of night. And um, thinking I'm doing just great because, you know, I'm bringing some cash in, some really random cash that's like, here, babe, here's this amount of money. Like, wow, okay. And then sometimes that money doesn't come because I'm spending it in different ways. So that all was pretty rough. It's a, it's February, so it's about 7 p.m. I'm waiting to go out. I'm a night guy now. And I get a phone call. And this person on the other line, I'm like, they're asking me if I could help them make a connection with someone. Like, who, who is this? And they're telling me which club they met me. And I'm like, oh, okay, I remember. And I said, no, 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 I can't do that. And then I hang up the phone and I remember some other people that I know. I call them back. Hey, you know what? I think I can help you out. This is the first time I've ever tried to be a middleman for a narcotics transaction. I'd never done this in my life. I got this phone call randomly because I would give out my cards to people when I was driving. And I'm not knowing that these are some young folks that have been watching me at all the clubs. I pull into the area that I knew was a rough area of San Francisco to pick up this young man. He comes out. It's not him. It's three guys. And I only know this because of what I learned after. It's February 7, 2018. The next time I opened my eyes was February 28th, March 1st. They got in the car. Oh my they goodness. shot me in my neck right here. It pierced my cathartic artery. Oh my god! I was admitted to San Francisco General Hospital dead. So yeah, I was in a coma for 21 days. A single nine millimeter bullet was put to my throat, and I will tell you to this day, I don't know if those boys were angels or demons, because had that experience not happened, my life would have never changed. I didn't know that my wife had already formed the divorce papers. That bullet actually saved my marriage. It was coming. I didn't know she had already told my mother and my brother that I was using and running the streets. They were already planning the intervention to come. I had no idea of any of this. Um, When I woke up in the hospital, I could not walk. I had to learn how to walk all over again. I could talk, but I didn't really know what I was talking about so much. So it took a little bit of speech therapy, occupational therapy for me to get back to whole. But as my wife often says, I don't know how to quit. Um, I don't know how to give up. And so as soon as I could walk, I wanted to walk. And I was using a walker. And as soon as I was able to get home, I knew that being isolated was going to make me worse. It took me that year to become the type of man that I would trust again. And it's taken even more time for that to become the man that my wife and my children would trust again. Yeah, I've never told that story publicly to anyone. Um, Again, I think it was bitter medicine. I was such a hard head. My wife had told me to stop. My wife had told me I needed therapy. No, 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 no. was always the answer. But it took a bullet through my throat. It took me dead, not sort of dead. It wasn't like five minutes, six minutes. It's like the paperwork, my father's this big. It says 25 minutes, no heartbeat, no breath. I'm not supposed to be here. Everybody at UCSF Medical School, the leading surgeons were coming around like, you know, you're a miracle, right? And um, yeah, I do 
um, recognize that it is only by the grace of Allah that I'm here. It is only by the grace of Allah that I was then be able, yes. able to begin the work of restoring relationships. You were saved to do the work that you were supposed to do to be the person you're supposed to be. And I'm, I'm in literally trying not to cry because, and thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for sharing this story. Cause I can feel, I can feel how hard it is for you to share it. And, and, and I'm sure it's, it's a wide variety of emotions that you're experiencing right now. And I, and I, and I hope you feel safe enough because I want people to feel this because we as a community do not talk about this openly because your story, unfortunately is not unique. We have this addictive, this addiction within our community and we don't have the resources to help people. So you've gone through this extreme version of it to help provide, to give somebody a solution. And that is exactly why you're here. And, and, and can I say what a saint your, your wife is, mashallah, like I would love oh to gosh. hold her yeah, hand one day just to get some of that, come, some of that. Like when my husband is chewing too loudly in another room, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I need a little bit more patience because <laughs> your wife is patient. And, and, and I, so I, I just need some of that. So I'm hearing this story and be like, thank the Lord for her because you needed her to get you to this place, to get you the, I mean, there's every single step along the way has gotten you here so that you can do the work and you're calling it a midlife crisis. I'm calling it a catharsis, like a cathartic moment to get you to that next level of spiritual renewal. And that is exactly where you need to be. And mashallah, what a blessing, what a blessing for you to be here sitting with us. My mom's family is also converted family and there's a lot of addiction in their, in their side, which is why for me, you know, like we never talked about halal haram and, 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 and drinking and all that with our family. We always talked about like the fact that we have addiction and addictive personality traits within our family. And that's kind of how we approach that conversation with our kids. But, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that 12 step program, you know, that is like that, that, that typical thing that people talk about when people people are trying to do addiction and recovery. Why is it that we can't quote unquote Islamicize something like that? And why do we have to have a different approach when we're, we're talking about addiction and recovery for our, our um, demographic of people? Absolutely. It's a great question. One thing that I'm, I'm becoming more and more sensitive to is that, you know, the different treatment models for different folks. So I'll certainly say that I, I don't want to diminish what 12 step has the the 12 step model has it meant works to for some, some people, people right like so um, you don't want to diminish that right right and um what i'll say is that as a you know again I, i've done so much in my career part of that was a lot of community-based um non-profit management and at some of these facilities that i've worked at churches um public health places some of some of these places held aa and na meetings and so I was made privy to them even before I was, you know, in my own addiction. I knew what the steps were. And, and I remember hearing what they were saying and saying, that language I just couldn't say. I couldn't call myself what folks in, in, in AA call themselves. I couldn't feel that resonance to share publicly in that way those sort of things about myself. But again, that 
that may work for some people. For me, language means a lot. I'm so sensitive to say this. Addiction is real, and the brain doesn't forget what it's addicted to. Meaning, like, there's a a storage in the brain that, you know, you're always going to remember if you use meth, what that felt like. If you use marijuana, what that felt like. And that work of when you get that emotional, really solid hit that is going to make you not go back to that thing that will make that emotion go away, that's that personal work that I don't know how to explain it other than, I guess, personality and faith. Um, there is the idea, and I, I can't remember his name, uh, Malik Badri. He's the father of Islamic psychology. He's a, he's, he's, um, he passed not too long ago. He has a lot of studies that basically make the premise the Quran is full, is sufficient, and we need not try to replicate Western paradigms and approaches to psychiatry um, and, and just fill in the blanks with Muslim terms and, and nomenclature. I, I think that that's true. I know that in my own recovery, what it took for me was living the prescriptions that are set out in the Quran. Somewhere, however, through the practice of the prescriptions of the Quran, that complete fear was paired with love. And that love came from doing this work. I'm about to get emotional again. Um, thinking about my father dying before 53. Um, his, my father's mother died of alcohol. So looking at the fact that I've gone through these experiences, that my entire paternal line was riddled with alcoholism, um, and that Allah has decided to use me to come up with some sort of solution, I've wept just driving. I appreciate and love the faith that you're showing because you're praying, but you're also tying your camel, right? So to that end, tell us um, about your research study, why it's needed, and uh, what you hope the results will inform or produce for the Muslim community in America. According to the American Muslim Poll, which was taken in 2020, 37% of adult Muslims say that they know someone personally who has or is struggling with addiction. That's compared to 57% of the general public. According to a Pew Research Center uh, 2018 study, there's 3.4 million Muslims living in the United States that we make up about 1.1% of the total population and that three quarters of the Muslims here are immigrants or children of immigrants. It also says that Uh, U.S. Muslims are two times more likely to have attempted suicide than other faith groups within this country. I think that there's there's some stats that I have here about college, and approximately 46.6% of Muslim college students in the United States in 2017 reported that they had at least one night of binge drinking. um, Compared to 80% of non-Muslim college students. I think that... um, in terms of what we need, we need the open conversation that we're having here. I think that where I live in San Francisco, um, when I started Better Conduct before I was in grad school, I told everybody about it. Oh, yeah, that's great, brother. We need it. But nobody was biting at me to come and, and talk to the, the, the students or, or to talk to the parents of that Muslim um, at, at the Islamic school. There were no takers. Once I had context of being a grad student and was showing my research, I finally got one invitation <laughs> to speak to a masjid, and that was a 
you know, a predominantly African-American masjid where there's more, um, I, I guess, lived experience having those conversations within an Islamic setting, perhaps. I'm not sure, but it's growing now. And um, I'm hoping that it will continue to grow. My hope is that my goal, at least with Better Conduct, is to set up a, a recovery farm. For me, it took working and praying. I moved away from my environment to North Carolina, a place I'd never lived before. And I just went to work every day, came home and prayed every day, cooked my own meals, ironed my own clothes, did my own laundry, did everything for myself, and it was great. I even miss that sometimes um, these days, just like having that, that space and that solitude. But it was hard. There were some days of tears. There were some days of anger as well. And so the, 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 the program that I'm working to establish is a farm, is an actual farm where folks are coming to work on that farm for a minimum of nine months. It took me nine months to get myself back together and I think that, you know, it's a, it's a pretty significant number, nine months to, to form a life, nine months to get a life back on track. Which insurance company mm-hmm. is going to cover nine months? I, I don't think that there is one. I think it's going to take investment. I don't, I don't think this is, unfortunately, this isn't going to be a Medicaid, Medicare program. This is something that has value and people would have to, you know, um, to spend some, to be there. I'm, hope, I'm hoping that the farm would be, you know, profitable, so it, we could discount it for folks that needed it. At some extent, folks will be working on it, getting treatment. What I wanted um, to offer our audience was to understand what um, Salah you're asking them to do in terms of helping you with the study. Absolutely, um, my my brain is is committed to making two points that I I mentioned that I wanted to come back to. And um, I'm going to answer your question, and I also want to mention these points as well. Um, I was working in a residential recovery drug and alcohol treatment center when the pandemic hit. And our numbers skyrocketed because the AA and MA group stopped. It took a minute to pivot to virtual. So all of those folks that were used to going to their weekly meeting couldn't go, and they relapsed by the hundreds, perhaps by the thousands. And in terms of the 12-step model, that part was important to me to, to point out because the pandemic hit, but Allah was still accessible. I could still make my salat. My program didn't change when the pandemic hit. I wasn't needing to see these certain people at a certain place every time to, to hold me accountable. The accountability was in my heart because Allah I give my heart there instead of pursuing that. And I think that that is one of the richest things that we have as Muslims, that when you, when you have faith in Allah, no matter if there's a pandemic, no matter if it's rain, shine, whatever the weather, wherever you are, you can always access Allah. So there was never a stop in my connection. There was, my support was never outside of myself, even if the masjid was closed. My support wasn't in the masjid, it was in the Quran, it was in my heart, it was in my tahajjid prayers, it was in my daily salat, it was in my fasting when I could on a Monday and a Thursday. And so that that really showed me something, that if you set your, your, your recovery or your sobriety and you connect it to people and places, what happens when those people aren't there? What happens when those places aren't accessible? Are you going to have the wherewithal to continue 
on your road? And for a lot of Americans, the answer was no. I mean, these are folks that had not relapsed in 20 years that I found that were back like they had a binge and wound up in psychiatric, psych, I'm sorry, psychiatric emergency based on a drug experience after having been sober for many, many years. Um, so I think that one thing that I want to do with better conduct is just keep on pushing back on the individual that you can have the life that you want, but you have to first give your life to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by following what is given in the Quran and the Sunnah. And through that, that's always going to be accessible. And the second point was, I don't know how to say this. Um, so I embraced Islam at 17 as soon as I left my parents' house. I got to college. I made shahada. found two Muslims that I would met from high school at some conference. They were at the same college and um, was happy about that. When I wound up in that hospital, that's when my family met the Muslim community. My mother knew that I was practicing Islam, um, you know, like I'd, I'd had it in my household as, you know, when the girls were younger, our practice was pretty strong. We would do talim at the house, as I mentioned, they were in Madras or Islamic school, but it was more like a do as I tell you, not as I do sort of thing. I, I made sure that they studied, but I wasn't the best Muslim. So when I was in that hospital, when I was asleep, I woke up to my mother telling me stories about guys that I know from the masjid, because what you have to know about me is through the addiction, gosh, there's so many stories. Um, when you're an African-American coming from a whole different context, my belief when I learned about Islam, when I was ready to embrace it again, was that I need help and Allah is going to give it. So those nights, when I'd be out drinking or doing whatever, I would show up to the masjid for fajr, reeking of alcohol standing next to the Yemeni brothers that were making faces at me with an attitude of like, I dare you to say something to me. I'm here because I'm drunk and I need not to be drunk. Like I, I didn't have the thing that kept me away from the masjid, that, that thing of like, you need to be perfect to show up. I never thought the mosque was there for that. I thought the mosque was for broken people. I thought the mosque was for me. I thought I was supposed to go there because I, I knew I needed help. But then when I found out that the imam was just going to tell me, brother, oh, doing drugs is not good, I became kind of frustrated. I'm like, what do you mean? This is, this is it. If you're a Christian, you have a drug or alcohol problem, you could go talk to your pastor. You could get counseling. But in my community here in San Francisco, it was just like the, the, the stigma is so huge that no one's doing anything. And I'm seeing, again, I was out at night, so I'm seeing some of the young Muslims out at night at the same clubs where, I'm, where I was going and picking up people and and, and, and knowing that their families don't know that they're out there. So I think that there's so much value in making this conversation transparent and making the masjid a place where people know they can show up broken, that you don't have to be perfect, that you don't have to look like a perfect Muslim to, sh- to show up there, that you can show up in your addiction and get help, and people are going to, 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 to help you through, those, through your crisis. When I was in the hospital, I woke up to stories about all of these Muslims from San Francisco coming and sitting with my mother and my wife and my family in that waiting room day after day after day after day. My mother would even tell me, uh, uh, brother so-and-so, his, his, that, that cologne he wore, she was speaking of his oud, was so strong, but he would sit next to me every single day. And that's when my mother got to see 
the beauty of the Muslim community because, again, if you have my wife on, she, she can tell this story much better than I can because she was awake and she was there. But the Muslims were there for my family day after day after day after day. I was in a coma for 21 days. They brought food. They sat with my mother. They tried to leave my mother to embraces on. Brothers will tell me today, like, I remember, they, they know my mother, my brother, who none of them live in California. Um, my first name, they ask me every time I go to Masjid, hey, how's Kevin? How's your mom? How's everybody? These folks came to support my family like none other. How the listeners can support better conduct. Um, I'm, I'm completing my master's thesis right now. Like I have until May 31st to get folks to sign up to participate in my research study. So first and foremost, um, I need about 10 more folks just to meet the 24 that I said that I would you know, be able to, to pay to participate in this research. Um, I did not know how much money research takes. I did not know I'd be paying beyond the, the, the $20 Target gift cards paying for travel at the price of gas here in California is at like $7 a gallon. Um, copies, going here, going there, doing wow. this. But I would like to do the same exact study again, but with that level of support that I'm paying folks like $100 to participate in this research to be able to, to present them more questionnaires, to have more of a, of a large sample. And um, the United States is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. We're here in this country. I'm from here, so I want to set up treatment here, but there are some models of Islamic substance abuse treatment models in Malaysia. Um, I know Iran is very different, but also in Iran, but these are the Mm. two places that are leading in in having very open resources available for Muslims that are dealing with addiction. So I would like to go to those places and study what they're doing there um, since they've been doing it for longer. So I think just supporting better conduct in whatever way, shape, or form my life is doing this work. And if anybody has a farm that they want to repurpose for a recovery farm, let me know. Supporting researchers like me, supporting other folks that are doing that sort of research, as you mentioned, it's it's all hands on deck. We don't need too many more folks to have bullets. I took that bullet. Um, we, 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 we need to have some more solutions available. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, um, you can visit the website. I'm... Um, I'm building on it right now, but I'm really engrossed in the research right now. So I think first and foremost, support the study, participate in the study. Why don't you tell them where they can go to access uh, the study? Because I think the links are on your website. Absolutely. You can go directly to my site, www.betterconduct.org. And again, you can apply directly through the website. The links will be there. Um, the Per any um, social science research, when you when you re- when you do studies with human beings, you have to compensate them. It's part of it. So um, through my institution, you have to like I couldn't accept anybody's research for the study and not pay them. It's illegal. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing this very intimate, very necessary story um, because it just goes to show that it's not just our kids that we have to worry about. It's our entire Muslim families are being affected. Um, you know people our age are being affected. So um, the resources are necessary and we need to get there. We need to prove that there's a need. And that's why um, this Muslim barrier study is so, so important. We hope that everybody gets involved. And if they want to reach out to um, Salah, he's very easy to contact. I was able to do it 
quite easily just by um, a very little internet stalking and got him and, you know, convinced him to come on and share this very important work that he's doing for our community. So to that and Jazakallah Khair and may Allah bless and reward your work and bring Baraka to it and inshallah, you know, protect you from anything, including any virtual bullets that may come your way. I mean, Amen. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you. And I wish I wish Mama Well Muslim the best of success and you're doing great work. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma and Mommy Well Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy Wall Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.